Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our Relentless Sermon Series, which walks through the book of Judges and sees how God is constantly pursuing His people. We hope this episode will be an encouragement to you, and we'd love to hear how God used it in your life. As we look at our passage here, Judges chapter number 4. Judges chapter number 4, we're actually... And I don't say this to scare you by any means. You'll see that it'll work out very quickly. But uh, we're actually going to preach all of Judges chapter 4 and all of Judges chapter 5 this morning. But don't let that scare you. It, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be very compact. You'll get out sometime before dinner. So we'll get it finished out. Judges chapter number four, you have your Bible there, and isn't it a blessing to hold the Word of God in our hands this morning? But Judges chapter number four simply reads, verse number one, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. You remember Ehud? We read about him in chapter number three. He has now passed off the scene. Verse number two, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Hazareth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily Oppress the children of Israel. Verse number four then says, And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, she judged Israel at that time. Father, I'm looking forward to the message this morning, and we want to bow before you one last time. And Lord, just ask that as we prayed earlier, that we would not just go through a, the motions, go through a, a routine, not just be hearers of some good things this morning, but Lord, that we would take to account the lives that have been given and the persecution that has come upon the church throughout the centuries, just because folks like ourselves have loved and have lived out the principles of the Word of God. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that this would not just be a a flippant time, if I can say it that way. But Lord, that we would do all that we can to block out the cares of this life and to block out even the distractions that might even come even in this very room. And so that we might be able to hear from your holy word this morning. Thank you for our pastor and pray that you'd bless as he's preaching, perhaps even right now to himself and ask that you would use him in a mighty way. But Lord, we're asking that you would speak to each heart this morning. There's some here that just need to be encouraged. There's others here that need to be convicted. There's others here that need to be challenged. There's others, Lord, that just need to be comforted. And I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to receive that which we need from your hand. And I ask, Lord, that long after this day is forgotten, long after the speaker's name is no longer remembered, that, Lord, the principles we learned this morning from this dear lady, a prophetess by the name of Deborah, and her partner would just sink into our heart to remind us of how you use the most unlikely of all. We love you and thank you for loving us. It's in thy son's precious name we do ask these things, for he alone is worthy. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> Looking out at this congregation, I can just about imagine that all of us can remember a time of being in high school. Yep, I think we can all about remember that. And if, you, uh, if you were, your high school was anything like mine, uh, my high school put out the yearbook at the end of the year. And in what, the yearbook, they would always pick the seniors from that graduating class that year. Uh, unless you were homeschooled, maybe yours was just you that year. But uh, they would pick out the graduating class. 
And uh, Brother Quinn, they would do a section that they simply entitled, Most Likely To. How many of you remember that section in your yearbook, the Most Likely To? And then they would go through and they'd pick the various graduating seniors that were most likely to eat the most pizza in one setting, you know. And it'd be some real crazy thing, Brother Tom. I Obviously, you can tell I was voted most likely uh, to keep my physical physique from my high school years. You can obviously see that. But uh, I love what I read this past week in regards to some of the most likely categories that were out there. Listen to some of these. And maybe you yourself could be, we, maybe we should have a vote like this in church. It'd be kind of fun to see who you'd pick. But uh, I read some of these. Most likely to drop his or her phone in the toilet. And uh, I thought that was pretty humorous. Uh, most likely to sleep through an earthquake. Some of you sleep through pastor sermons and an earthquake would be no different. Most likely to talk your ear off. Most likely to be late to everything now and in the future. The most likely not to grow up. The most likely to put something off until it's past due. Any guilty procrastinators in the room this morning? Should we have an altar call right now? Most likely to become a professional comedian. I'm still working on that one, as you can tell. But most likely to become a superhero. Micah's got us all beat. Most likely to run off and join the circus. Pray for pastors. He's away from us. I like this one. The most likely to have a child born that would be addicted to Starbucks. I like that one. <laughs> Everybody's looking around at everybody. We won't take a vote this morning, I promise. But I have a question for you. I mean, we find some humor in that, you know, most likely to, the person that we think is most likely to, whatever. And uh, various of those would be obviously termed, and you can obviously use your imagination on where they're going with all that. But what if this morning, what if the yearbook, let, let's say that they decided to stop being politically correct, and they decided to change the uh, section of the yearbook instead, Brother Micah, to read something like this, Brother Craig, most unlikely, most unlikely to succeed. And there's your picture. Most unlikely to lead or become a CEO. Most unlikely to become the President of the United States. Uh, maybe, Brother Leo, they might put your picture in there and say, the most unlikely person to ever do anything with his life. The most unlikely to ever make a difference. You see kind of the thought here of, you know, we have in our minds, just as they do in the yearbook staff as they sit down together and they, uh, for humor's sake, they pick out the various people that they think would be most likely to, and we kind of gave some ideas there. But what about if they were sitting down and they were looking at people and they were basing out of the most unlikely to? You see, all of us have probably been a most unlikely candidate for something that uh, was chosen or picked. I, I, I'm not here to step on anybody's toes or I'm not here to, to, to dig up any old wounds or memories about being the last to be chosen as you were standing there in the uh, PE line of your, maybe your kindergarten days and you were the last chosen to play on the basketball team or you were the last on the bench, on the last part of the bench, right next to the water guy and actually he was in front of you even on the, the soccer team and so you were most unlikely to ever be chosen or be picked 
Well, this morning, with that thought in mind, we turn to the book of Judges in chapter number four. And I'm so thankful that the Bible is full of stories of most unlikely people and most unlikely characters. I'm so thankful that we can see ordinary people become transformed into the most unlikely vessels of God's grace and God's power and to be used to accomplish His purposes and His promises. And all of us are evidence of that very fact even here this morning. But that brings us simply to Judges chapter 4 as we look at an account this morning where God raised up the most unlikely of trios, uh, the most unlikely group of candidates to deliver his children Israel. I want you to see as we jump right into the story this morning, first we discover, number one, an unchanged condition. If you have a habit of uh, underlining or writing some things in your Bible, here's a simple outline, an unchanged condition. I see that, first of all, in the first verses of chapter number one. If you've been here in our series thus far, you can see that Israel continues to walk a path, a cyclical, if I can say the word correctly, as cycle they keep repeating because it's an unchanged condition that they have yet to really truly deal with and I'll tell you what I'm talking about in just a moment but I see this unchanged condition in the fact that Israel is corrupted or there is a corruption that is there look with me in your Bibles we read the verses number one simply says and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord did you catch that here this morning and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a sad testimony for any single one of us to have that the Lord would say in His holy word that would be written down and would be preserved for all of eternity for the Bible tells us that not one jot or one tittle will pass away until all hath been fulfilled and yet the testimony of our generation or even the testimony of our life could be said something like this, the children of Israel did evil again. What a sad corruption. You see, the children of Israel had once again to been uh, taken control of by their own sinfulness and their own sinful flesh. Ehud had delivered Israel from Eglon. Remember pastor getting up here with the handmaid's uh, dagger and talking about the, the very fat man that Eglon and how Ehud had killed him and, and there was peace and there was deliverance. Come on, if you're with me, say amen this morning. Otherwise, we're going to have to go back to chapter number three and re-preach what you should already have caught. But we see here that Ehud had delivered the Israel from Eglon, the Moabite, and the land had rest for 80 years. And even uh, the person we learned about just last week, Shamgar, raised up and he delivered uh, from Philistine army the 600 that he killed. And we see here the nation of Israel living in peace for 80 years until the leader passed off the scene. When Ehud passed off the scene at the very end of verse number one, when Ehud was dead, was when the people returned to their sinful ways. We read, they again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what kind of evil did they do? Well, in chapter number five, which is a, a, a complementing chapter to chapter number four, in verse number eight, the Bible says that they chose new gods, little g, gods. They chose new gods. They, the people of Israel turned their back on Jehovah God, the great I am, the God of their salvation, the God of their deliverance. And they, they again chose to serve and follow the gods of the Canaanites. There was a spiritual void in their lives that they chose not to fill with Jehovah God. There was a corruption. The book of Judges illustrates for us 
by using Israel as a picture, and I don't want you to miss this because I'm going to make some connection here in just a second. But Israel is a picture for us in the book of Judges between, or the, between the difference, rather, of religious conformation and spiritual transformation. Now, I'm doing this for a reason because if you've not been here on Thursday nights, can I just tell you, you're missing out. You need to be in church every time the doors are open and every time you have an opportunity because sometimes the Lord, for a dumb guy like me, has to connect some dots and sometimes he uses various ways and unlikely means to be able to connect those dots. In the past several Thursday nights, we have been learning from this very pulpit the very truth that I'm preaching to you this morning that there is a big difference between religious conformation. I dress up real nice on Sunday and I look real good good. But on Monday, I am not been transformed whatsoever. This last Thursday night, Brother Micah was bringing the message and he showed simply how that a caterpillar transforms into something completely different, which is a butterfly. It no longer resembles what it once used to be. My friends, can I sit here and preach for just a second? As a Christian, as a blood-bought, born-again individual that's been saved by the glory of God, there ought to be a great change in you because you're no longer the old creature living in the sinful flesh that you once were. There ought to be a transformation formation that takes place in your heart and life and you should smell different look different act different talk different right and as baptists we should eat different <laughs> but there's too many christians sad to say that they conform and look good on the outside without being transformed on the inside hey look at this real quick Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because they weren't transformed. Brother Micah, thank you. And I'm looking forward to Thursday night's conclusion. Well, I guess you don't get to do it, do you? Oh, he is. All right. You, had, you said the guest speaker, but that's never mind. So be here Thursday night because the culmination. But the children of Israel were conforming to the standards of their society. They were being Driven by every wind of change, they weren't transforming into what God wanted them to be. Oh man, I could park right here and talk about our culture today and Christianity as a whole. And we see churches all around our country that are dumbing down the doctrine of God's word and they are taking away the pulpit and they're replacing it with a comedian act that's most likely to become a professional comedian and most likely to become a professional speaker because he can get up there and boy, he can wow you with how good you are. My friend, that Bible tells me I'm a sinful being. And if I don't allow God's word to cleanse me of my wicked ways, then I'm just as apt as anyone else to return to the vomit the Bible talks about. We see here that Israel was not transforming. Rather, they were conforming. And at this point in time, they again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Confirmation temporarily changes one's outward conduct while transformation permanently alters their inward conduct. When Ehud was alive, they were following the standards of their leader. When Ehud was off the scene, they were doing that which was right in their own eyes, which was often wrong in God's eyes. Can I just stop again for a second? I got to say it. Moms and dads, it's easy to get confirmation and change the outward character of your sons and daughters as long as you're around. But when you're not there, 
Who are they really? That's where their heart is seen. Oh, sure, you might bring them to church on Sunday, but they're looking at you going, Mom, Dad, you're just a conformed Christian. You just conform on Sunday to look good, but the rest of the week you're not what you should be. And so how can they, how can we expect them to act right if we ourselves are not acting right? That's free. That wasn't in the message. But how easy it is to correct the outward character and not transform the inward heart. We see here that Israel, first of all, their unchanged condition was caused by their corruption. And that was that they returned to their sin or they returned to a sinful pattern which was inviting or choosing the gods of their enemy, the gods that were holding captivity over them. And that was the Canaanites. And that leads to what I want you to see in verse number two was that God then, because of the sin that they had found themselves in, that God gave them over to the consequences of their sin. Aren't you thankful this morning that you have a free will and that you can choose various things for your life that nobody like a robot is walking around here telling you what you should do or how you should act. You have a free will. You can choose for yourselves to love God or to not love God. You can choose for yourselves whether to come to church or not to come to church. You can choose a lot of things in this life, but the one thing you cannot choose, Brother Jim, you cannot choose the consequences that come with the choices that you make. You today can choose to go speed down 17. But when I, like I had three weeks ago, you have those blue flashing lights come behind you, there's a consequence to your choice. The children of Israel chose to serve other gods, and therefore the children of Israel chose the consequences that would come from not following and serving the Lord God, Jehovah, and that would become captivity, as verse number 2 tells us, that they were sold into the hands of the Canaanites. They were sold into the hands of a pagan, idolatrous people, and for 20 years, a man by the name of Sisera, really the power and the might of the Canaanite army, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. I see here that it's summed up in verse number two, where it says, uh, excuse me, verse number three, where it says, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. You see, the consequence of their sin was simply God gave them over unto the, the uh, chastisement of their sin, suffering then for 20 years being mightily oppressed. You know what? Israel knew what they were doing. And Israel chose, in spite of the knowledge of the consequences that would come, Brother Glenn, because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, written before the book of Judges, here's what God said to them. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth or correcteth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. We read the same wording in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he 
chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This morning, if there is chastening in your life and you're a born-again believer, then you ought to be thankful that your Heavenly Father is still giving you a spanking to get you back in line, to get you back to where you ought to be and where you need to be. And my friends, that's exactly what God was doing to his dear people, the children of Israel, who had wandered away from him yet again. And yet he, like a loving father, was allowing them to suffer the consequences because he knew ultimately it would bring them back to realizing, man, we actually had it a lot better under dad. Man, God's actually a lot better than we thought. These little G-gods that we're serving over here aren't doing squat for us. We better return back to the Lord God. And guess what happens? Verse number three. God gives them over to their sin. Their sin, they no longer wanted the consequences thereof because they were mightily oppressed. And that led to verse number three. Israel cries out unto God and asks for him to rescue or to redeem or to deliver them. They had become woeful in their, their current condition. And God was using these consequences to awaken them to his ultimate goodness and his ultimate grace. We see a, an unchanged condition in the children of Israel. There was conformity, but there wasn't transformity. But that led to then God pulling together and choosing a trio of what I'm going to call unlikely characters. Unlikely characters. God had chosen the most unlikely of the children of Israel to deliver them from the hands of their captors. And he begins with this one we read in verse number four by the name of Deborah, a very courageous woman to be the judge in the land. This was an act of grace that God would allow the children of Israel to still have some leadership in their land that was from their own countrymen. But it was also an act of humiliation for the Jews because they lived in a male-dominated society that only wanted mature male leadership, but God gave his people a woman judge to humiliate them in a sense, but also because they were acting like little children. And that's where they were spiritually. And they needed a motherly figure to draw them back. Can I just say this? Brother Mikey, you have the next slide. A sign of spiritual darkness is a lack of male leadership. Oh, man, I, I just want to stop and clear off a spot, but I better not because we'll be here all day. But can I just say it just real quickly? Men, we need to lead. We need to lead. It's not the wife's place to run the home. It's not the women's place to run the church. And I'm not being sexist or whatever you might say out there today. I'm telling you what God's word has to say, that there is a difference between us and there is a distinction between us and there's a load that men were, were made to carry and a leadership aspect that men were meant to carry. But God will use whomever he chooses if there is no one else willing Women are the weaker vessel. I heard it this way, and I love the way it was saying. It's not meaning that the woman is to be the subservient or she is below, Brother Micah. No, it's simply like this, Brother Troy. How many of us men, we're kind of like Tupperware. 
We can be thrown around, tossed around, tossed in the back seat. We don't have to get washed three or four times. We're good. We're Tupperware, right? But the lady is the weaker vessel. She's more like the fine china. She's not to be thrown around and mistreated. We could clear off a spot right here, but we're not going to. But I just want to point out the fact that God was looking for male leadership and he found none because the men were too concerned with their own hobbies, activities. They were sitting on the sidelines, Brother Craig. And so God chose then a woman. And God used a woman mightily. In fact, in our story, he uses two women mightily. I want you to see quickly this prophet or prophetess Deborah. I want you to see just real quickly her position. She was a prophetess, verse number four and five. She was a, a prophetess. This suggests that she received direct revelation from the Lord. She shared that word with his people. I also see that she was a judge, which means that she was there to settle the disputes among the people of Israel. They would come to hear her with their problems, and she would then render judgment. In a very real sense, Deborah was the national leader of the nation of Israel during those dark days. And Deborah herself called, uh, God called Deborah, rather, a prophetess and a judge. But Deborah herself uh, referred to herself as a mother in Israel. Judges chapter 5 and verse number 7. And we'll see it in just a minute. But she said, I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. The wayward Jews were her children. And she welcomed them and she counseled them. She was a prophet. She had a position. She was a judge. And she would render judgment. But I also see her prophecy. Verse number 6 and verse number 7. The God calls unto her and says unto her, I want you to pick Balak and I want you to the son of Abinoam, and out of the Kedesh Nephtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand of the men of children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thy hand. I see here God delivering unto Deborah this prophecy that Israel was to assemble an army and to draw Sisera, the leader of the 900 chariot army of the Canaanites, and he was to come, and they were to be trapped by Mount Tabor, which was right next to this river, Kishon. But I see here Deborah's partner. We've yet to meet him other than by way of just a quick mention, but his name was Barak. Barak. Most of you, probably if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard of Deborah and Barak, the two kind of go together. It's just kind of a team that was uh, brought together. There was a partnership that was summoned. And Deborah summons this second of unlikely characters, Barak. And we are told that Barak, or we aren't told that Barak was a judge. We're not really told anything about his standing or his position. But we do know this, that God chose him and appointed him to be the leader of the army of the children of Israel. And God commanded that Barak take 10,000 men and go up to Mount Tabor. And there he would give the Canaanite army me into his hand. I find this significant, Brother Fountain, that Deborah was not chosen to lead the army, but she could inspire it. Barak was not chosen to prophesy, but he could fight. Thus, Deborah could not secure the victory without Barak, and Barak could not secure the victory without Deborah. The right hand couldn't gain the victory without the left hand. Thus, a partnership was formed. Again, I've got to make mention of it because it's right here. You may think yourself as just a foot. Your talents, your abilities may not be much. But in order for our church to move forward, we need some feet. 
Well, you might not say that you can do much, and so you might just picture yourself as just a hand, but without a good hand, it's hard for us to be productive. You might say, well, I'm not the head. I'm not the preacher. I'm not the one that stands. But without a body to support that head, then this church does not do great things for God. And I just want to point out quickly, it's a New Testament principle, but all of us have been fitly framed together and put into the body of Christ because all of us have useful goals. And when that partnership is formed, hey, how many of us are from different walks of life? How many of us have different looks and expectations? I can't play the piano. I can't do a lot of things. But God puts me with other people, and all of a sudden my life starts to make a difference. I was a most unlikely, and God puts me with other most unlikelies in that partnership formed, Brother Micah, brings about God's glory. Deborah, Barak, unlikely characters, but a partnership was formed. And God promised Barak that he would give Sisera, the army, the leader, into his hands. And that, was, and that result would be that Barak would become a hero in the eyes of God's people. And therefore, God was, maybe in a way, God was going to raise up some male leadership. You see what we're talking about? Are you catching the big scope here? However, Barak, though he's an unlikely character... He's also an insecure character. I see Deborah's problem in verse number 8 and verse number 9. And Barak said unto her, If thou will go with me, then I will go. But if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. That's, there's some humor in there, but nobody caught it. Deborah shares her word from God that Barak... Get your 10,000 men, go to Mount Tabor. God will fight for you. Barak says, you want to go with me? <laughs> I see Barak's fear is greater than Barak's faith. But I love how even though Barak hesitated when told what God wanted him to do, he was still willing to go. There was still a willingness to serve. There was just a fear that was there. Come on. Has anybody ever been there before? Lord, I want to go out soul winning. They do this donuts and doors thing, but I'm willing to go, but my, what if I have to talk to somebody? Fair booth? Oh, man, I'd love to, Brother Craig. I, man, that'd be awesome, but what if somebody... Like, wants a water bottle. <laughs> Sometimes we're willing, but there is that fear that keeps us from stepping out in faith. I'm not going to judge Barak here, and you know why I'm not going to judge Barak here? Come on, somebody ask me why. Why are you not going to? Uh, thank you, thank you. You know why? Because Barak... Even though we find maybe a hesitation in his faith, oh, this is awesome. He is written in the hall of faith, chapter 11, verse number 32. Barak's name is mentioned in the hall of faith as one of the unlikely characters who acted in great faith. Now, I just want to stop here again. Can I... I may not have or possess great faith today, but I can learn from the faith of someone else and be encouraged because of their faith, and that helped me to take the step of faith I need to take. 
oh, this is so good. Deborah was ready to go. She said, I'll go with you. She was ready to act in faith. Why? Because she had already proven God time and time again. Why else would she be a prophetess and a judge? She had already walked with God enough to know that my God already told us the promise is that we are going to win the victory. Barak, I'm with you. And because of her faith, Barak took his step of faith. Could it be that there's a church member sitting next to you that's never stepped out in faith in giving and tithing, but on a Sunday morning they notice you consistently stepping out in faith, giving and tithing, and they might think to themselves, you know what, I bet I could do that. You know what, I bet there's some in here that they show up that first Saturday morning for Donuts and Doors, and they are scared to death. Scared to death. But then a brother, Brian, comes up to him and says, hey, you want to partner with me today? I'll do all the talking. All you got to do is just walk and talk with me. And because of seeing his faith in action, somebody else takes their step of faith. It's too good to miss, folks. But God wants to use us. But sometimes he partners us together with somebody that's stronger in an area to help build our strength in that same area. Well, I see the story continues, and I've got to be quick because I understand the time already. But I see that Barak and Deborah, they team together, and they go together, and they pursue after the, the Canaanite army. Now, can I just give you, just sum it up just real quick. I don't know all the verses off the top of my head. I apologize. My notes are up there. But I see here that a great victory is wrought because Barak gets his 10,000 men gathered together. They go to Mount Tabor, and there they wait until the Canaanite army comes. And, well, there's a man, verse number 11, his name is Heber of the Canaanites. He sees all this military might being gathered together. And I just want to point out one more thing, too, that the children of Israel did not have very many weapons. And so what Deborah and Barak are about to do and the undertaking that they're about to do in regards to fighting this army of 900 plus iron chariots without any real military strength is an act of God alone. And I see them as they're on Mount Tabor and as they're awaiting that this man Heber, he runs off and he tells Sisera, hey, the children of Israel, they're going to revolt and you need to get your army and you need to get them to Mount Tabor. And so Sisera says, all right, let's get them gathered together. And he begins to travel to where they are there on Mount Tabor. And then the God, then God speaks unto Barak and he says, I want you to come down from Mount Tabor and I want you to fight them in the plains by the river Kishon. Wait a second. Are you catching the, the greatness of this? Barak, I want you to leave the high ground, military guys. I want you to leave the advantage of the high ground where their chariots will not be very effective against. And I want you to go down to the plains where their chariots are going to be very effective, where you now are on neutral ground and nobody has the, the really the high ground or the leverage. And there I want you to fight the children of, uh, of Jabin or the army of Jabin of Sisera. Can you imagine Barak looking at this situation going, this is ridiculous. You want us to go from the high ground to the low ground and be slaughtered. But what Barak didn't know and what Sisera didn't know was that there was a Jehovah God fighting for the children of Israel. God would, in chapter 5, it describes how God, as these two armies met in the plain by the river Kishon, God brought the thunderstorms and the rain 
and the rain began to overflow the banks of the Kishon River into the valley, and it began to create a very muddy experience for 900 chariots. God allowed the children of Israel to win a great victory because he took away their advantage by sending the flood waters. Sisera had no idea that was going to take place. Barak had no idea that was going to take place. But God was relentless in his pursuit of his children. We see that the armies clashed together in the muddy waters there, the muddy pits that, if you will, of the fields. And every soldier was slain of Jabin's army, except for one by the name of Sisera. And I've got to go quick for sake of time. Sisera gets up and he leaves his chariot and like a big sister, he begins to run. And he runs about, if you get, gather it, about six mile run to get away from the battle. Could you imagine being worn out after about six miles? He comes to a, 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 a settlement, a, a village, if you will, of various tents and things, nomadic people. Obviously, they didn't have sky rises and things. And he comes to this area that was inhabited by the Canaanites. The Canaanites were descendants of the Jewish people, a long descendant line there. They were kind of neutral at this time. They weren't for the Jews, but they weren't for the Canaanites. They were being oppressed by the Canaanites, but at the same time, if they could stay neutral, then they could still make their living by pleasing the Canaanites and by pleasing the Jews. Oh my goodness, I just have to say it. We cannot be neutral in this life. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot trying to serve God. You've got to choose a side. You can't sit on the fence. But here the Canaanites were sitting on the fence and they were being neutral, if you will. And Sisera is running down and he sees the Canaanite tents, if you will. And he sees one of the ladies step out of her tent by the name of Jael. We're not told much about Jael in the book of uh, Judges or anywhere else other than that she was married to the guy we find in verse number 11 by the name of Heber. Heber the Canaanite. This is his wife. And she sees Sisera, and he's running. He's been running for six miles, Brother Cummings. And he is worn out. He is flat out tired. And she waves him in, and, and she calls him into her tent. And she brings him in. And she says, what can I do for you? Is there a need I can meet for you? And he says, oh, boy. And he's worn out, asking for a drink of water. Instead, she brings him a drink of milk and, and sees that he's worn out and he's tired. And she puts a blanket upon him, and it's dark in the tent. And he's trying to hide. And... She's just trying to be hospitable at this point, neutrally hospitable. But then Sisera tells her why he's there. He says, if any man comes to your tent and asks if there's anybody inside, tell him, no, lie for me. And at that moment, this courageous lady, the light bulb blinked. She realized the reason Sisera, the army's leader, was running and now trying to hide was because the Canaanites no longer had their death grip on the land. And she now chose a side. And there in that darkened tent as Sisera lay fast asleep, I wish I had all the tools that Pastor would have and the gory graphic off, uh, stuff we could picture for you. But as he's laying down, J.L., the wife, takes a tent peg and a hammer 
And she nailed that tent peg through his temples and nailed him to the ground. She walked out of the tent, Brother Danny, and she simply said, nailed it. Now, what Sisera didn't know was that when Barak hesitated in his faith, that Barak lost the opportunity to be recognized for his great military victory. And God instead told Deborah that the victory would go rather to a woman. Most of us would have thought in that reading that it would be Deborah, but instead it was this other lady by the name of J.L., a most unlikely character of the story. And she killed the leader of the army because she realized, I am not going to let this man live and suffer the wrath of the next king. I'm going to choose which side I am on. And she chose that day. And Barak came trying to find Sisera. She stepped out of her tent. She said, hey guys, over here. And that day, the children of Israel were delivered. Awesome story. But there's still just a little bit more. And I'll do these quickly, but I want you to see something very quickly. Though we read of these three unlikely characters of this story that delivered the children of Israel, don't you know that the entire time it was really an un relenting commitment that delivered Israel. If you have your Bibles, quickly look down or look at the screens. These three words that simply read in verse number four, in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter four in verse number 23, the Bible simply says these three words, so God subdued. The unrelenting commitment was from Jehovah God. God was the one that was at work through the whole story. God was the one that was drawing his children back unto himself from their unchanging condition of sin. And he was using the most unlikely of people and most unlikely of tools to do so. God was the one that chose. And God was the one that set up Deborah to be a leader in the nation. God was the one that summoned Barak to come and to lead the armies of God. God was the one that instructed the military to, uh, to, to do what they did, to not to leave the high ground, rather, and to go onto the battlefield where Israel would have the choice of where the battle would take place. God was the one that brought the rain, and God is the one that chose the waters to overflow the banks in a dry season. God is the one that summoned Sisera there because Sisera and his army trusted in the physical might and in their chariots and in their horses, but Israel trusted by faith in the Lord God Jehovah. And I can just think that maybe David, when he wrote these words in Psalm chapter 20, maybe there was a thought of this particular battle taking place because I read the words that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen but we are risen and we stand upright. My friends, can I just say, when God's fighting for you, nothing can be against you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And though some may trust in their finances and some may trust in their intellect, we can trust in the name of our God because God is the one at work. God is relentlessly pursuing his people and it is God who fights for you. Verse number two of chapter number five, the song is saying, praise ye the Lord for avenging Israel. 
God's unrelenting commitment to the nation of Israel resembles God's unfailing love to his children. Even when all looked hopeless and lost and for 20 years to be mightily oppressed, God, who was using the dire circumstances of their own choosing, was working in their lives to once again show his great might and his great power and his great love because he alone is Jehovah. He alone is our defense. He alone is our deliverer. And whether you read it in chapter number one or the very end of the book of Revelations, God is on a relenting commitment to redeem his people. God subdued. And that led to this last thought that it culminated as they recognized and they realized it was not their military might for they had no weapons. They had no standing army. They had a prophetess, a woman that was leading them, an insecure man that was trying to get them to do what God had told him to do, and a woman who was not even a part of their society. God used the most unlikely of characters to alone take the victory and gain the victory and to show the children of Israel his commitment towards them. And therefore, as they stood back in awe and as they saw all that God had done, it culminated in this scene of united celebration. Chapter number five, we're not gonna take the time to read it, but chapter number five is simply a song of Deborah and Barak on the victory that they had achieved. When the Jews wanted to celebrate a special occasion, they often expressed themselves in a song. You see, future generations might forget what the history book said, but they were not likely to forget a festive song. The personal pronouns in Judges chapter 5 indicate that this was Deborah's victory song, but just as Barak had joined her in battle, so he joined her in this victory of celebration. And in verses 10 and 11 of chapter number 5, we can see that Deborah and Barak summoned the wealthy nobles, ye that ride on white asses, and they summoned the common travelers to join the singers at the wells and to praise the Lord for what he had done to Jabin's army. Now it was finally once again safe to walk the roads, to once again gather at the wells to once again just enjoy the leisure talk of one another and the people could leave the walled cities where they had run to for protection and they could leave and they could return into their villages in peace and it was a time for all of Israel to praise God for his mercies to them and they praised and they celebrated God for the power that he showed in their lives by delivering them from the hand of the Canaanites through three unlikely characters. There is a, un, a uniting in praise, a uniting in celebration. But what about you today? What about me today? What can we take away from this story that, I mean, there's so much. I, I didn't even stop in all the spots I probably could have stopped to make application. But this morning, if somebody near you is sleeping, nudge them, wake them up a little bit, because this is where the message, where the rubber meets the road, if you can say it this way. And I want you to see that there is at least two things that we can consider from this story. The first one is simply this, that sin is a horrible condition that each of us must face. Sin is a horrible condition that every single one of us must encounter and must do something about our sin. 
The children of Israel were in bondage because they had chose their sin over their Savior. They were in bondage because they wanted to serve the little G-gods rather than the big G-god, Jehovah. And because of their unchanged condition, because of the sin that was in their heart, they were not transformed. They were only conformed. And because of that, they faced slavery and captivity. But my friend, you and I are no, no different from the children of Israel. Sin is just as horrible today as it was in their day, and it's a condition that every single one of us must face and must battle. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5, verse number 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That means every single one of us sitting under the sound of my voice. That means everybody that you'll meet at Walmart later today or Winco or Taco Bell or wherever it is that you might go, every single person person that you might hand a water bottle to or a popsicle or that you might pass at the fair this week. Every single one of us are in a, a horrible condition known as sin because sin is passed upon all men. Romans 3, 10 and 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand it. There is none that seeketh after God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages, the payment of our sin is simply death. James 1, 14 and 15, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Sin leads us to slavery and bondage to an oppressive master. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. We, like the children of Israel, must recognize the destructive influence of sin in our lives, and we must re recognize how susceptible we all are to return to our wicked ways. Peter said it this way in chapter 2, verse 22, and he was summarizing or rehearsing a proverb from the Old Testament, but it says, but it, yet, but it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow that is washed to her wallowing in the mire. You can cl clean up a pig real nice, but a pig's still a pig. And it's going to return to its pigly ways. But you and I, the Bible says that once we are saved and born again, we are a new creature. And all God's people said, amen, amen for that. Sin is a horrible condition that all of us must face. And there's not one person here that can make a decision about sin for the person next to you. All of us must make a personal decision on how we will face sin. Will we be like the children of Israel and turn again to our sin? Will that commentary, Brother Tom, be read on our epitaph that we again did evil in the sight of the Lord? Or, we, or will we be found pleasing unto him? But then I want you to see, and we're all but done. Sin is a horrible condition, but God uses unlikely people and uncommon means to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his promises. He certainly doesn't need you or me, but yet God chooses to work through ordinary people like you and me. He does this regardless of our gender, our race, our physical abilities, our natural talents, our finances, or any other factor that we might use to pick out someone to do a job. The fact is that we may not have been the most likely to succeed in our high school, but God can use the most unlikely to succeed. God can use the most unlikely to make a difference. God can use the most unlikely to further his kingdom work. In fact, God can use whomever, whenever, and how. However, he wants. He alone is creator God. 
if God could use a female prophetess living in a male-dominated world, if he could use a reluctant military leader and a rainstorm with its raging river, if he could use a housewife with a tent peg to be an instrument through which he freed his people from oppression from the Canaanites, then certainly he is capable of, of using any single one of us. God used the ark to save a family. He used a shepherd's staff to part the Red Sea and to deliver the freedom to a nation. God used an army walking around walled cities for seven days, which made no military sense, to deliver an entire nation to the, and to deliver that enemy. Hey, can we just remind ourselves just a few weeks ago, God used a dagger in a very fat man's stomach. God used an ox goad in the hands of a farmer to slay 600 Philistines. God can use the foolishness of preaching. God can use a small congregation in the Northwest in a town like Moses Lake to spark revival that can be used to turn our nation back to him. God can use an invitation that you hand out this week to a friend or to a coworker or to a lost person that you meet at the gas station. God can use a fair booth where somebody hands out a bottle of water and says, we love you. And we just want to know if you ever have a spiritual need in your life, we are here. God can use a youth rally in a couple of weeks to save some souls and to challenge some lives to have the most unlikeliest of teenagers to do something great for God. Hey, if God can use all those things, then why can't God? God use you. Why can't God use me? You talk about the most unlikely. Most unlikely was how God saved me. He sent a little baby in a manger. No paparazzi, no cameras, no nothing. That little manger or that baby in that manger grew up to be a young man that turned his world upside down. And just when all of his uneducated, unchosen, most unlikely followers forsook him, he hung on a cross. Most unlikely way for him to provide salvation as the God of the world. But yet he paid my sin debt and he paid your sin debt on that cross. Why? So that we no longer have to be slaves to our sin. We no longer have to just be conformed to the image of this world. We can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we can be a new creature because of salvation that's been brought to us. Friends, if you've not trusted Jesus Christ this morning, then God wants to make a difference in your life. And you can have victory over that horrible sin problem I just described that even the children of Israel went through. All because the most unlikeliest came to this earth, bled and died on the cross but victoriously rose again. But maybe there's some out here that you think, man, Brother Dan, that's awesome. I know I'm saved and praise the Lord for it. Well then, did you know that God's still in the business of using uncommon people, the most unlikeliest of us, to do great things for him? What does God want you to do this week? What step of faith might it be that you take that somebody else is just waiting on you? You know, I read this this last week, and it just reminded me. I've heard it before. 
But sometimes we look at the abilities of others and we go, man, I could never sing. I could never preach. I could never talk to. I could never this, that, and the other. I'm the most unlikeliest to ever do that. Did you know I hate talking to people? But God still uses all of us. But you know what? It may not be the ability that you have to offer. Because the greatest ability is just being available. Here am I, Lord. Deborah said, here am I. I'm a woman. I'm, I'm just a housewife. I don't have much to offer, but here I am. Barak says, I'm an insecure dude, and I, I don't know what we're doing here, but I'm willing. JL said, I'm going to choose a side to be on, and here am I. This morning, what does that mean for you? Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you would like further information about our church, please visit moseslakebaptistchurch.com.